I come from a scientific forestry background and also agriculture, most of the things we read were based on the Western experience. Be it the soil science, which comes from Germany, be the forestry comes from Germany, agriculture coming from the US. But once we go to field, you get humbled. Like right now I'm working in Nagaland and I see the tribals, the way they manage the trees, the way they prune the trees, the train the trees, you'll be amazed. No, no horticulturist, no forester can do that. The 2011 census shows that India is home to 700 tribal groups, representing around 104 million people. India's rural population, on the other hand, accounts for around 850 million people. Together, indigenous people and rural communities live and work with nature every day. And across the world, they steward over 80% of the planet's remaining biodiversity. This was recognized by the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, in 2021, where for the first time, they were promised $1.7 billion in funding to preserve the world's tropical forests. The knowledge sits to the community. Pranab Chaudhary is the director of the Baitharani Initiative, an NGO based in Orissa. He's talking about the kind of knowledge he's seen amongst the tribal communities he works with. So here people know where the product are, they know how to regenerate it, they know how to harvest it. So you have to work with them. But these communities face a multitude of challenges. Their lives and livelihoods are intimately connected with the health of ecosystems, many of which are degrading rapidly due to deforestation, mining and industrial agriculture. Today, they pay the highest price for climate change. The most important thing is you have to respect them, you have to trust them, which is missing in many of the forestry paradigms. Nature-based solutions align with age-old approaches that value the critical link between conservation, biodiversity restoration and communities and their livelihoods. But can NBS support sustainable business practices while also restoring ecosystems and generating livelihoods in an equitable way? And can we do this in a way that ensures balance, consent, collaboration and mutual learning with local communities? Welcome to Second Nature, a new look at India's climate future a podcast series on the possibilities of nature-based solutions in India. This series is produced by the India Climate Collaborative and Edelgiv Foundation Alliance. In this six-part series, we speak to practitioners, experts, leaders from the private sector and funders to learn how nature-based solutions can play a role in the goals that lie ahead of us. Climate action, community resilience, resource security and biodiversity conservation. And we ask the important question, what kind of collaboration and investment do we need to scale these solutions? In this episode, we explore two examples of community-focused nature-based solutions from the states of Orissa and Andhra Pradesh. And we speak to Pranab Chaudhary and Satya Tripathi, who take us through their experiences working with indigenous tribes and local farmers through their land-based interventions. Episode 3, Back to Our Roots. The Baitharani Initiative is an NGO that protects forests and the livelihoods of the tribal population of Orissa. The organization was started in 2006 to deal with issues within the Baitharani River Basin. 
The river basin management model that Pranab uses is based on natural geoecological units defined by how water flows or drains through a river basin. Unlike development approaches that are based around administrative units like districts and blocks, this framework is more closely aligned with the landscape and the relationship between people and the ecosystems within it. So if the land use are aligned as per the natural geological units, so there is a more likelihood of the development more sustainable. And then when you integrate with the people and institutions and livelihoods around that, then you find you no know, these interactions are more complementary and this development is more resilient, just and equitable. Orissa is known as a tribal state because it is home to 62 scheduled tribal communities, approximately 23% of the total population of the state. These communities traditionally rely on activities like agriculture, fishing, hunting and gathering for their subsistence. We find they do some kind of practices which are agroecological, which are more eco-friendly. And because they don't get a market, they shift to you know, commercial agriculture, which can you know, cash crops, which are not bad, but for them, because of lack of capability to invest and lack of you no know, access to irrigated land and better quality land, they end up in losing things. So sometimes they are cheated in terms of pricing. And other times also, many of the products are very irregular demand. And so they end up in putting a lot of labor in collecting and many times not able to you know, sell it or when they sell it, they don't get a good return. In 2011, Dabar, a private entity, joined Baitharani to see if they could procure medicinal plants from Baitharani's catchment areas in nine forest divisions of Orissa. This objective of the project was twofold, promoting you know, forest conservation and forest area expansion, forest cover increase, as well as improving the livelihood of the communities living in the forest villages. We also wanted that the harvesting should be sustainable because we have seen earlier when there is a trigger for a product, people would fail it. Pranab tells us about a story from a few years ago. A private company was trying to procure a large quantity of gooseberry, locally known as Amla, to the Katni district of Madhya Pradesh. They wanted the produce within 48 hours without any damage to the fruit's skin. Harvesting of Amla involves shaking the Amla trees to make the fruit fall down. But this often does damage the fruit's skin. In the hurry to meet this company's demand, people took to cutting the trees down instead. In 2016, a biodiversity study of amla trees in the region found widespread loss of tree cover because of this, which must have had a long-term impact on the communities. When Dabar first began working with these communities, they wanted to ensure that the partnership prioritized their needs in a transparent way. So when we were trying to promote the livelihoods, we thought that if they can be given you know, more market information and more market choices and more market linkages, probably you know, that situation would improve. In this case, it involved sharing information on support prices up front. We provide them support price that is declared at the beginning of the season. And they know the which products to procure because this product, if they procure, they will definitely be sold. And they know at what price it will be sold. Dabar also offers other market information on the quantity and quality of the produce they require. This ensures that the ecosystem has the capacity to regenerate and prevents a situation like the one with the Amla and Katni from arising in the future. So what made this partnership possible? Pranab says one factor is the Biodiversity Act of 2002, a milestone regulation that institutionalized biodiversity preservation. 
The Act provides a way for equitable benefit sharing by corporations who rely on traditional biological resources and knowledge. But that's only part of the story. There are some kind of obligation on the companies towards actual benefit sharing. That whatever biological products you will be sharing or collecting from the natural forests or natural ecosystems, you have to share some kind of you know, return with the community. So as a result of which, you have biodiversity boards, management committees have been formed in many states, but they are not working pretty well, but that system is in place. And at the same time, they realized that many of the products they are getting, they don't have any clue from where they're coming. You don't know the quality parameter, you don't know whether they will come next year because sometimes they are harvested non-sustainably. Globally, there is a growing business focus on sustainable sourcing and supply chains. But procuring materials that have been grown or harvested as per desired standards and in the right quantity can be a challenge. But in the case of Dabur, we can see how this nature-based solution created an opportunity for both parties to benefit, the business operations as well as the local community. Dabur was able to build closer contact with 4,000 local households and supported their access to harvesting and selling rights for eight forest products, which in return received supply chain guarantees and certification. The partnership also addressed fair compensation. Every year, almost, these people are getting about 40 to 50 lakhs uh, no, among themselves from Dawar, from this trade. So definitely their income has increased, their knowledge has increased, their network has increased, and also forest biodiversity. They started putting the seeds into the forest you know, through a simple system of you know, putting them in cow dung balls during the monsoon you know, and organizing uh, tree planting festivals within themselves, which we encouraged. And that also led to, you know, it is leading to more regeneration coming in. And, and Dawar is telling that they are getting the best quality produce uh, from these people, you know, if they want to compare with the other produce they are getting from the market. Still, it is a very, you know, small percentage of the Dawar's whole procurement. But Dawar is keen to continue. One other aspect of the program is its extended partnership with the State Medicinal Plants Board and the Forest Department of Orissa, which helped them access the certifications they needed to transport their produce across state borders. The central pivot of interventions like these is trust. They have to work in the interests of the communities they partner with. This system, if you really work closely with community and develop a institutional architecture, Bring in transparency, which is very important. Bring in transparency about quality parameters, about payment structure, about you know, principles of sustainable harvesting. In addition to transparency, developing better frameworks and certification can help grow this ecosystem. This is especially true for wild collection, which cannot compete with cultivation and the standardization inherent in chemically treated products. And Pranab says that certification can help communities like these a great deal. If we don't create a good market for wild collections through some kind of certification, there will be a challenge in furthering that. And once the protocols are there, we have to also work with market forces, consumer awareness, to say that these are certified and you buy it. But this is not simply an environmental or economic challenge. It has strong cultural aspects too. Pranab talks about how many young people are migrating away from these ecologically sensitive areas in search of better opportunities and employment a phenomenon that's widespread across India and increasingly being attributed to climate change. So if you really want to arrest that youth migration, because when they go away, then uh, other people come in and you know, harvest forest and you know, tribals, they protect the forest better. There are some local cultural understandings that we have to see and see how the you know, forest is framing in their cultural narrative. 
Providing financial stability to youth to empower and incentivize them to stay is a key part of scaling up interventions like the Baitharani Initiative. So we have to promote these nature-based solutions through partnerships, which can bring in finance, which can bring in certification, which can bring in technology, promote institutions like FPOs there. So that is the ecosystem around which now our next phase of work is starting. When nature-based solutions are respectful of the local communities and allow for their stewardship in the entire process, they're more likely to be successful at meeting economic, social and environmental goals. And this case demonstrates how different stakeholders can come together and use a blended finance model that can bring even more interested parties into the partnership, especially from the private sector. They are now more inclined to listen at least and experiment and work with you. Pranab says there is great potential for growing ventures like these. I see this is a kind of nature-based solution, which is not only promoting the economy, also contributing to the global reducing in global greenhouse gas emission. Because all of these you know, practices use less mechanical energy, less chemicals, add a soil carbon to soil, make soil healthier, it landscapes, and many times contribute to local economy. We have to add to that local culture and societal collectivization, societal participation. So when we see that this triple bottom line along with culture is addressed, doing something which is good for the economy and good for the earth and good for the people. Agriculture keeps about 75% of the people in India engaged in some form of occupational employment, if I may use that term, but providing only under 15% of the productivity. And that can't be good. And so we really need to change that. And that hides the story. It's not just statistic about 75% and 15%. The story is really about people putting in all that efforts and hardly making any returns. So if that changes, and that's the that's what we are seeing in Andhra Pradesh, In 2014, the government of the state of Andhra Pradesh established a not-for-profit company named Raitu Sadhikara Samstha to support farmers at a time when the state was experiencing a number of environmental crises. Farmers there were facing water stress and scarcity, soil degradation, biodiversity loss and migration from rural to urban parts of the state. One of the programs they launched is the Community Managed Natural Farming Program, or the CMNF. It was set up to encourage vulnerable farmers to shift from conventional agricultural practices using chemical inputs to climate-resilient practices using natural inputs. At its heart, the initiative is built on a foundation of community support. In Andhra Pradesh, the program trained farmers to adopt ecologically sustainable practices on their land, such as seed inoculants made from cow dung and urine. They also trained them on techniques like mulching and soil aeration, vermicompost, and natural pest management. But they were supported by the extensive network of women's self-help groups, SHGs. These SHGs were critical to the success of the program because they were able to effectively support the farmers by providing and selling a number of farming inputs. By integrating large-scale training, farmer empowerment, and leveraging the extensive SHG network, it has turned the program into a veritable community movement. The program now works in 13 districts with 3.5 lakh farmers on 260,000 hectares of land. 
The Andhra Pradesh program is one of the largest globally, and it has inspired a number of similar initiatives in Africa and other parts of the world. And their target is to get to the entire 7 million farmers in the state, roughly 5 million farmers and 2 million very poor people whom the government is giving about one-tenth of an acre of a land to do some agriculture so that improves their nutrition. Satya Tripathi works with the Global Alliance for a Sustainable Planet and is also the chairperson of the Sustainable India Finance Facility, which is a partnership between the United Nations Environment Programme, the World Agroforestry Centre and BNP Paribas. It aims to leverage private finance for public good in India. The Sustainable India Finance Facility works with the Andhra Pradesh government to support the community-managed natural farming program. What we have seen now with solid evidence that farmers are saving anywhere between 30 to 50 percent water with natural farming, because chemical farming is thirsty. You need water to synthesize all those chemicals. Plants need that. With natural farming, they don't uh, need as much water, which basically means in the bore wells, you are pumping maybe 50% less time, which means 50% saving of electricity, which means 50% saving of subsidies. The inputs used in natural farming are on average 80% cheaper than chemical inputs. And the yields have gone up. And these are independent, verified data. This is not government data I am quoting. Anywhere between 28% to 200%. That's extraordinary by any standards. The farmers are seeing improvements in yield, soil health, seed diversity, quality of produce, household food autonomy, income and health. Most reported lower farm expenses and need for credit, which is a major problem that plagues Indian farmers. But a lot of experts say that getting to these measures of success, such as improvements in yield, takes time, which is why it's so important to support farmers through this transition. And initiatives like this one recognize how important an enabling environment is for success. Satya also talks about the benefits of natural farming practices in building resilience and capturing carbon. Agriculture is about 500 million tonnes of CO2 emissions annually. It's about 460 now, but in the current growth path, it will be 500 by 2030. But if you switch to natural farming, you will produce a billion tonnes every year in sequestered carbon, soil organic carbon. It brings with it people's health, soil health, ecosystem health, economic regeneration and transformation. So everybody wants to buy that kind of carbon where they can serve the SDGs, all 17 of them, by actually paying for carbon that is much more meaningful than just, you know, direct-to-air capture carbon. One of the biggest challenges the program has faced is resistance to the idea that natural farming can bring yields. The dominant model taught in most agricultural sciences programs is still driven by the legacy of the Green Revolution, based on excessive use of agrochemicals and over-extraction of water for irrigation. And it is these principles that often find their way into agricultural policy. You have an entire ecosystem of scientists, experts, that have spent a lifetime studying chemical, agrochemical and pesticide-based farming. And so they're hired by the government and they come with a degree, a university degree, and then they come and unlearn what they have learned in their agricultural sciences education, that just put aside input first and look at it with nature first. What protects nature? What is in harmony with nature? But change is possible. 
especially when farmers are empowered, ensured fair information access, and supported by a system that respects their decisions, needs, skills, and knowledge. Of course, the detractors will tell you that, oh, where are the nutrients? You know, where are the nitrates coming from? Where's the phosphorus coming from? Where are the phosphates coming from? That's the NPK universe. But that has actually brought us where we are today. It made India the largest producer in very many agricultural commodities. But at the same time, it is depleting our soils at a rate that in 40 to 50 years' time, we have nothing to grow, perhaps. Dr. Ravi Babu, the managing director of the Farm Center Development Department at NABAD, visited the program recently. When I interacted with the farmers, the way they transformed, for example, in the low rainfall area of Anantapur district, when we visited field, the neighboring farmers who did not take up natural farming, they are waiting for rains for cultivation of the fields. Whereas the farmers who are practicing natural farming, they are having green farms integrated with uh, trees, that to fodder trees. The improvement and application of bio-inputs, Ganajivamurtam, Dravajivamurtam, such type of bio-inoculants. And bio-inputs are supplied commercially uh, in, the, in the village itself. The farmers who are practicing natural farming, we have seen the fields and we found that soil is uh, having enough soil moisture. It has improved the soil health. It was quite visible. So how did these projects get funded? In Orissa, JICA, or the Japan International Cooperation Agency, is the international microfinance partner. A revolving fund was created to support the tribal villages under this program. Sometimes the revolving fund may shrink in a given year, and Baitrani is forced to work with banks or find alternative channels that cannot entirely make up the difference. Though the scale of energy is still low, many times we get some problem with forest department, local leadership, in getting the fund in time. Although the producers on the ground have seen a significant improvement in returns since Baitrani's intervention, Prana believes there's room for more. Though it is currently better to their opportunity cost of labor or what other people are getting in that area, so in that way the impact is you know, comparatively better, but if you look at absolute term, it is still not much. And when it comes to scaling up, the returns to the producer are still low. One way in which Baitrani is trying to address this is by encouraging Dabur to diversify and expand the range of products they procure, thereby helping communities increase their incomes without leading to over-extraction. However, financing is still a challenge, and more funding is required if initiatives like these are to see impacts at greater scale. In Andhra Pradesh, the Community Managed Natural Farming Project is government-funded, through direct cash benefits to farmers that incentivize them to switch to natural farming. A partnership ecosystem was also built to bring in more international organizations like KFW, the German Development Bank, and philanthropies like the Azim Premji Foundation. Dr. Ravi Babu tells us about the funding role that the Azim Premji Foundation played in the project. A unique uh, approach has been seen in these project areas, uh, both in Srikakulam and Anantapur. Whatever grant supports were there, they are meant for promoting business units and enterprise mode. These funds are used for training the uh, entrepreneurs or the self-help groups or FPOs, farmer producer organizations. These funds also go into setting up seed supply units, bio-input resource centers and other such business units. Building this kind of capacity is key to scaling up interventions like these. And as Pranab says... A key enabler for financial partnerships is the understanding of local needs and of the people the finance aims to reach. The knowledge sits to the community. 
so here people know where the product are they know how to regenerate it they know how to harvest it so you have to work with them so the scalability lies in working with the community around forest products perhaps what we don't appreciate enough are the domino effects that good nature based solutions can have on our ecosystems these are not always captured in program reports as they often lie outside the narrow impact assessments and time frames that aim to measure livelihoods and economic productivity in the adaptation space this will actually save us save our food systems build our food security regenerate our ecosystems bring back water levels the groundwater and you know and and we are already seeing the signs of birds nesting in agricultural fields bees are coming back on their own which is extraordinary and these are indicator species you know they perish the moment you start using the chemicals or to be precise neonicotinoids which doesn't happen now so they are all coming back earthworms are coming back millipedes are coming back centipedes are coming back so it's working and we need to instead of disparaging natural farming we need to look at it and look at the evidence and say wow this works in our next episode we look at the role of policy and government how do we collaborate with government to scale nature based solutions Thanks to Satya Tripathi, Pranab Chaudhary and Dr. Ravi Babu. This podcast is produced by the India Climate Collaborative Edelgeb Foundation Alliance. For more information on the India Climate Collaborative and its work on nature-based solutions or to read a copy of the report, please visit indiaclimatecollaborative.org. You can also follow the ICC on LinkedIn at India Climate Collaborative.